You're listening to Dead Air Podcast, part of SplatterPictures.net. What's up, everybody? Wes, Dead Air Knife here with Always. Typical Lydia. Today's show, we're going to be doing the 1988, not classic, close though, it's cool, Edge of the Axe. Beep, boop, boop, beep, 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 beep. That's me That's hacking. you hacking or you're controlling your Moog synthesizer. Yeah, it's like Revenge of the Nerds. Do, 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 do. This is, first of all, it's good to be back. It's good to oh hear my God, you. Oh my God, yes. Good to see you. Yes, yes. We're still recording remotely, but I mean... This particular title, this the trailer alone screamed dead air, splatterpictures.net, Wes and Lydia need to talk about this movie to me. So for our listeners that are happy that we're back, we're also happy that we're back. Still going strong through this fucking pandemic. But, uh, you know, see the light at the end of the tunnel or the axe at the end of the car wash, as, uh, you know, the case may be. Yep. <laughs> um, this is... Technically, it's a Lydia pick. You came at me like a wild animal with three different movie ideas. And this was the one that um, I'd already seen. So that helps. And also, I got the Fancy Pants uh, Blu-ray edition of it from Arrow. So I was excited to uh, check it out again. Although, you know, I'm not going to be... Listen, I'm listen, gang, I'm not going to front. I'd never heard of this movie before Arrow released it. <laughs> If I had been in your shoes, they would be really loose because I'm tiny and you're not. But no, if yeah. I were in your shoes and I would see this cover, I don't care what it's about. Mm-hmm. I'm buying this. Edge of the Axe. It's got this guy with a mask, axe and it's glinting in the moonlight and there's blood. I mean, that's... Yeah. Look at the date. 88. Perfect. That's it. It's coming home with me. Yeah. I wouldn't care if it was taped over by home movies. I just want it to sit on my shelf. <laughs> I, I definitely had a that visceral reaction and to be fair uh until recently the sort of boutique um disc releases companies like that do this sort of thing um nothing had really ever been jumping out at me and edge of the axe recently i've gotten back into getting a few titles um because i've been happy again with it but it had been a little while since a seldom talked about slasher got put into one of these upscaled formats. And then of course, what usually will happen is the nice new transfer that is created because of these releases gets put onto shutter and other streaming services. So everybody gets to enjoy these really nice versions of these not lost films, but certainly ones that get shoved through the cracks Yeah, the first one that ever crossed my mind well before Arrow was a glint in anyone's eye was Pieces. I picked it up as a VHS at a vacuum and guitar store. That's a story for another day. But Pieces (laughs) was really the one that launched this love of the hidden gem, so to speak. And it's it's tough mm-hmm. to even use that word and apply it when things aren't hidden anymore. And maybe like no. in the case of some of these films that are dug up from the 80s vaults are not gems, but they feel like hidden gems, like pieces 
and uh, Blood Rage, I guess, it was the next one that comes to mind, or the most recent one, that you would have seen the cover of. It was an Arrow thing. It was a hidden gem that maybe sparked. Another late 80s um, edition. Well, eight, late 80s release. It, that Blood Rage was filmed in the early 80s, but uh, not released until the late 80s. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Especially nowadays, there's so much information and I really think it bears repeating every single time that back when we were young, hidden gems tended to be hidden because of two factors. One, you couldn't fucking find them unless your video store happened to have them. This was a made-for-TV thing that was also released direct to VHS. So Edge of the Axe never had a theatrical release. It was there to feed the beast of the, the, the video home video demand that existed in the 1980s. And the other thing is that there's so many of these movies made, and the big ones that bubble to the surface, uh, particularly in the late 80s, you were contending with massive sequels from Friday the 13th, Nightmare on Elm Street, the, the Child's Play franchise started up in around this time. And also the fact that people were moving away from this type of movie. The slasher, the golden era of the slasher was done. And so films like Edge of the Axe would have seemed almost like an antique in 1988. But still, there was enough of an audience to keep people hungry for it. And now with the internet, when these films get re-released... It's like everybody knows it because it's like everybody's got a podcast. Everybody's got a blog. Everybody who likes this type of shit is going to talk about it, right? Yeah, there is a huge grapevine effect. The word of mouth is spread so much more quickly and to people you don't even actually know. And not only did you have to actually walk into a brick and mortar store and peruse these titles, you had to walk into the right one because of all the blockbusters or whatever, the mom and pop stores, especially mom and pop stores owned by Christian families that did not have that red light area in the back or a horror <laughs> section. You had to have that, that it just had to be the right circumstances, a Goldilocks of horror to find titles like this. And even then, if you, you know, were in the know or ordered VHS and had hundreds of dollars to drop on these things, uh, you had to actually know someone or be in some sort of grapevine like a zine or a, tra a tape trading setup or something. Or, as this movie speaks to, be in that early bulletin board system, dial-up internet fucking grapevine. You had to be connected somehow, whether it be by your feet walking into a store or having some sort of underground club. You're right, and I'm glad that you brought up the computer element, uh, the, the technological element of this film, because this LIDS occupies one of my favorite spaces in the late 80s and early 90s, and that is computers are magical. Computers are magical. <laughs> like, whether it be hackers or Camp Nowhere where, like, the little girls, like, rewire a Nintendo to, like, hack into the Pentagon or some shit like that. Like, it is, like, it is people who have no idea how this shit works trying to basically use it to do whatever they want. The idea of that these, that they have these 
ancient computers that have like Google essentially <laughs> is is um wild to me. And it just speaks volumes to the fact that, you know, people writing this movie didn't know what the fuck any of this shit did. And it's great. It's so it, it really is a bygone era where you could just say computers did anything. And people are just like, yep, that's them computers. You're going to have microchips for brains. You heard me, Clash said. <laughs> I love that line. That line cracked me up. Literally taking this movie very seriously because I do enjoy everything about it. And I, I enjoyed the synth score. I enjoyed the acting. I enjoyed the premise. I enjoyed the blood. I enjoyed the effects. Um, but and the computer stuff I, I I wanted to love. I did love it, but it was an absurdity. Like there's a lot of absurd mm-hmm. stuff in this film, but that was the height of absurdity for me. And boy, did it give me a chuckle. I laughed more through this. And not of the things that like a typical not a horror fan, but someone who stumbles upon this as a pizza party kind of movie, and they're laughing at the the gore and the synth score, and they're laughing at the corpses and they're laughing at the acting those are the things that most people would find funny i i like them and find them i take them very seriously but that the computer element in this oh my god it is ridiculous the computer has a voice guys the computer talks it's 1988 this is a pet it's not maybe it's a vic 20 hooked up to a monitor for a pet but i i I kind of got the sense that the computer was like we were supposed to be reading it in Gerald's voice to somehow know for people who can't read the screen or or to keep it interesting because they're like we can't just have characters staring at a blank screen silently so it's it's kind of like um in that movie from the 90s uh you got mail where like Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan are literally speaking out loud everything they're typing like they're on the fucking phone or something and they're like this will keep it interesting this will keep it moving for the kids and for the kids for the kids or for the grandmas for the grandmas but yeah it is really really strange um and and just again like just this idea of like ask the computer anything i'm like uh i mean i was alive when computers like this existed like i don't think you could really do that like you could you could play like text-based adventure games and you could do math problems but like in terms of like the type of data that they're pulling from wouldn't have necessarily even been on computers at that time. You know what I mean? Like, no, not necessarily. Although he does talk about hooking it up to the network and there yeah. was a low baud rate dial up system in place, typically for mm-hmm. uh, universities and NASA, but like mm-hmm. the things that they are expecting to have been stored on computers that they would have access to just simply were not the psychiatric institutes did not store their things on any sort of accessible database. And if they did have a a database at all of staff, it wasn't that detailed or patients. It was not that detailed and it wasn't like a a central system. And if it was a central Mm -hmm. system, it was uploaded by floppy disks or something (laughs) from one computer to another with the uh, hand foot express. Like there was no internet of, of things back then and there was no wi-fi so they don't talk about how they're connected either they don't mention that they're probably hooked up to a 12 baud dial-up system which 
is not instantaneous either. It would take a while to get this information, but they're treating it a lot like the internet operates today, which is forward thinking. You know, you can give them some gold stars here for their forward thinking nature. I think they gave the computer a voice kind of to be in line with the HAL 9000 of 2001 Space Odyssey, because even though there's no screen with the text that you have to read and listen to with HAL, you kind of get this mm -hmm. soothing voice. Because it doesn't really sound like the male character, necessarily. No, and it actually can get a little confusing because sometimes when the screen is changing, you're not even really exactly sure who's talking, like who's asking this question. Mm -hmm. And so this this idea of, is Lillian asking this or is Gerald asking this? Who is getting information about what? It's not clear at all. This is one of those instances in which you know, I've seen this movie before, but I haven't seen it in a crap ton of times. While we're watching it, I can't really even field questions, like, because I can't quite remember exactly the the, the sequence of events. I, I remember um, watching it and just being like, wait, who the fuck is talking? Like, I think I know who the killer is. I've seen this before, but this doesn't make any sense right now. And then my brain works it out afterwards. But uh, fuck all that. You know, we've been talking for a little bit, but like, what is this movie even about anyways, Lydia? This movie is about appearances not always being what they seem in small town Southern California. And that hot little number that works at the bar may not be the girl of your dreams. This lady's got style. She's got her candy striped shirt. She's got her very cool high-waisted jeans, which are back, by the way. Everyone's talking about them, so. Well, they make me look taller. <laughs> which helps, for sure. That's a pretty apt way of looking at it. They really go hard on this um, small lakeshore town atmosphere. Like, you're getting right in there with the music starts playing. It kind of reminded me a little bit of, like, some of the music that's in like the mutilator and shit like that, it just seems kind of inappropriate, but also it sounds vaguely like like a Dolly Parton song, but like yeah. not really. Chris had pointed out that the music must be by Luralene Lumpkin of Simpsons fame. <laughs> Cause that the song is a crummy Dolly Parton ripoff, and it's sort of about the town which is yeah. just weird, but it is incongruous because it's not the sort of thing that these people should be listening to. I don't think it's the kind of music that was on the radio. No. They do mention some like Texarkana kind of stuff too. So I guess it's very Southern California to be sort mm -hmm. of near that. And I mean, what's scarier than Texas, right? We're just a little, a few inches away from the, the Chainsaw Massacre and where pieces will say you don't need to go to Texas for a chainsaw massacre, you don't need to go to Louisiana for an axe murder. You know what else pieces says that we can never forget? It's exactly what you think it is. Edge of the Axe really is a movie about people getting killed by an axe. They don't fuck around. They don't bury the lead. They bury the axe in a lady. They bury the axe in people's heads, in people's backs, in people's legs. The two things that I really like in this movie... Which elevate, I love the, the twist at the end, but I love the look of the killer. I love that white mask and the rain slicker looks so nice. I was going to say slick, but obviously. Yeah. I, I love how frantic the killer is. I love how agile in some 
cases the killer is. And if I had seen this as a kid, I wonder if it would be really elevated in my mind. Because basically, Chibi West's only requirement, which is like, does your killer have a mask? I'm in. Yeah. Like, I loved killers that had masks, and I love this mask. You know, it's like, it's what keeps really good slashers um, from becoming all-time favorites is like is when the slasher character is just like a guy. It's like, you know, Slumber Party Massacre, this is a guy. Peacock-like though he is, he's just a guy. Or in um, Final Exam, for example, again, it's just a guy with jeans, right? Like, it's not really visually interesting and i was all about the slashers kind of like superheroes right so i want them to be visually very interesting and edge of the axe i mean my i wouldn't be disappointed and also there's something about the cover of this there's something about the presentation and even the title that would make me think that it's italian or a giallo-esque type thing like blood and lace or something like that and it's not entirely unexpected because may not be Italian, but it has Spanish origins. It's a joint production of Spain and the United States. And so I think like the European sensibilities make it seem like it might be slower, but the American sensibilities of it mean you get killers right up front. First fucking real. You are getting killer and murders. Not unlike pieces where that was also a a Mm Spain-U.S. joint venture. And it starts out with someone getting killed immediately. And it's got that giallo-esque blood. And it's got a black glove killer, You sort of. And there's a masked person lurking in the dark. I mean, that's not Mm -hmm. intrinsic to pieces. But in this particular film where it, it... Mm-hmm. reaches back to noir and giallo and of course things like phantom of the opera that remind me quite a bit mm. of comic book and true crime things and the covers of those true crime and true detective magazines where you get this shadowy figure lurking in the dark with a weapon glinting in the moonlight and that bright red blood so it's got a lot of these like really important cornerstones of the slasher genre whether the makers of the films knew it directly or not, what they were pulling from. And it's kind of culminated all on the cover of this film and the trailer, because the trailer, I expected it to be a lot closer to pieces and Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, perhaps a little bit more Mm -hmm. high concept where not that this isn't, it just is very low budget. It's very, very low budget. And it was made at the end of the cycle of a director's lifespan. One of his very last movies, where every movie before that, it seems to me, just in a cursory view, because I've never watched any of this uh, director's movies, they were all like devil vampire sex films, which I loved. I just loved devil vampire sex films. I want to say that over and over and watch a bunch of them. (laughs) But he was trying something new. And his trying something new was dipping into this very rich subgenre that was now mature. It was like a teeny bopper um, yeah. kind of age as far as that was. So he, of course he was pulling in all of this uh, European and British and like everything ended up in the mix here, it seems. And it all just comes out on the cover. Yeah. I mean, that cover is just absolutely incredible. And um, I, I really think you're right. And the more the more we keep talking about pieces, it lacks 
the energy of pieces, but at the same time, it does really remind me of when I first was uh, telling you about this film because you had suggested it, but I hadn't seen it and you hadn't at the time. And I was likening it to Prowler because, and it was only because Prowler leans so heavily on the, you don't know who the killer is. Yeah. And this movie also has a lot of scenes where there's just like a bunch of guys standing around in a circle, a semicircle, just being like, God, who is this killer? We don't know. Um, this is a small town. Let's keep it tight and clean and everything like that. But yeah, no, now that I think about it, obviously Pieces is a lot more violent. This doesn't have, uh, this has a, a case of um, floating axe syndrome in which it doesn't really look so much like penetration is happening with the weapon. Yeah, you can tell a lot of times where it's bouncing off the mm-hmm. the pieces. Like you get that set piece at the beginning where we're really relying on blood on glass, which is a look mm-hmm. I know you like, and we all do. <laughs> red, red blood on glass with a, a glazed eyed victim trapped behind it. You know, it's a really great way to start the film, and it sort of belies the rest of it where the attacks the gore within the attacks aren't as visceral or as believable Mm. unfortunately but there Mm. are a lot of places where it just doesn't quite hit the heights it needs to and and that's probably why it remained a hidden gem for so long like the the score is reminiscent of a lot of movies like it but it just doesn't quite hit the mark or it sort of falls off the mark with the other music that's within the film and like the gore doesn't it's not as bloody the sexiness the people that are supposed to be sexy kind of aren't and the uh, there's not as enough boobs i don't think there's any boobs but you had pointed out it's made for tv no. uh, they make reference to breasts in the film and i think if like I th- gorgeous tatas or something like that bodacious tatas bodacious tatas thank you thank you i didn't want to mess that line up for posterity but you're right it's a lot of you know loose t-shirts it's a lot of like nipples through fabric but yeah you're they they don't ever really show you anything you see uh lillian's naked back for example um and and there is some you know hijinks there is some stepping out on each other but also um most of the characters are a lot older in in sense uh, the youngest characters seem to be like Lillian and Gerald even his friend Richard he's an exterminator he has like a job he's married to a much older woman so it's not it, it's a, it's a lot less like college slash teen hijinks because it really is although it does have like scenes that really remind you of like summer flings and stuff like that like the scene on the the swings and stuff like that but yeah, so I, but there, you're right. There does seem to be like a lack of uh, sexiness. Gerald is really hard to figure out. Like, it's such a weird character. I've known quite a few people exactly like Gerald, and a lot of them had an affinity for Amiga uh, computers and Vic 20s. So, I mean, he fits that mold. The mm-hmm. teen heartthrob, not so much. And in a town where there seems to be all sorts of sex going on and a hooker that even the cops know by name 
and mm-hmm. she she's even older too like you're right everyone seems to be quite a lot older so maybe they're like got the lazy sexiness we're like yeah seen it all <laughs> before we're gonna go out on a boat alone and fool around on your husband but mm-hmm. no shirts are coming off <laughs> or something yeah. i don't know it's just really yeah. awkward that way but uh, when we when we're first introduced to Gerald, he's driving through the town, and it's got kind of got the same sort of intro as Rabies without the motorcycle accident. But we're driving through a town. We're sort of introduced to this awkward character, who is really shitty to everyone around him. <laughs> he's extremely shitty to the guy who he rents a, a an apartment off of. He rents like this little yeah. A-frame apartment hobbit hole on this man's property and when we first meet and see where he lives he's like extremely shitty to this old man this old doctor in town yeah and then when we meet his friend who's fooling around on his wife who's older than him the exterminator he's extremely shitty to him too yeah it's that it's this off-putting sarcasm that he has that um I, I was joking while I was watching it, and I said, um, oh, uh, it's Gamergate 1988, because, you know, he, he immediately from, he's playing a, an arcade machine, and then explains why he's so good at it, and then immediately tells the girl that he's talking to that she wouldn't understand, though. He probably wouldn't get that. <laughs> yeah. And that sort of underhanded way she has to go about explaining to him that she has the high score. It's because she like fucking lives there and plays this thing all day long. And that high score number is hers, but it's not noticed and he doesn't react to it. No, he doesn't give a shit. And um, I mean, he does give her a computer, which I guess, which uh, is is kind of interesting. He, His whole situation kind of reminds me of like a shittier roadhouse in which... He, like, comes, and I love that look of realization on your face. Because it's like, he comes to this old man's house, and it's like, instead of being, like, a good guy that does, like, Tai Chi, just as an asshole that plays computer games and shit like that. Yeah. He's like... Yeah. Crappy Roadhouse. Um, yeah, he's Crappy Roadhouse. That's what he is. Is The movie gives you an immediate sense that there's something off with Gerald. And they're going to play this game throughout the entire thing. They're going to do it a couple of times, but Red Herring characters um are obviously a trope that is prominent in horror but i can't think of another one in which from the jump they're trying to make you think that this guy is fucked up it's the long weird stares the super tight close-ups on his face the 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 way he doesn't really answer people when they're talking to them doesn't give them uh, either no eye contact or way too much eye contact. Yeah, they really go out of their way in the first reel to make you think like, like not only make you think that he is a real dickhead, but you also wonder why is anyone like this guy? He's sort of hitting like all of those points of like not quite the McDonald tracks. We don't know if he pees himself at night or if he <laughs> tortures animals, but he's manipulative. He is maladjusted. Yeah. He is a loner. He is secretive. Mm-hmm. 
We, he, he refuses to talk about his family. We don't know where he's come from and we don't know what he does for a living. Like all of these things are, are whirling around in our minds if we're paying that close attention. Uh, and mm-hmm. the camera angles, definitely. I didn't think about it till you till you pointed it out. There are like so many lingering shots on his very weird looking face. And he is like yeah. a, a total ectomorph. So he's just striking to look at to begin with, with very strange hair. And he looks 10 years younger than he ought to be. Like he's just mm-hmm. a, an unsettling character given unsettling lines and unsettling camera angles to complement all of this. So red herring. Yeah. yeah I mean, I, I keep going back to pieces. The other red herring, one of the other red herrings in this film is Jack Taylor, who starred in pieces as well as the teacher who mm-hmm. has a questionable secret of sexuality which of course yeah. casts doubt upon him way back when when people didn't know how to write characters yeah do you think that gerald's personality is the writers saying oh he likes computers so obviously this is how he has to be or is it is it more deliberately them trying to make him a red herring or is it because they just think that if you like computers as much as he does, you are a maladjusted person? Partially, yeah. Because on one hand, they don't understand how computers work. So they obviously don't understand the uh, culture of nerds or geeks or programmers, because that's basically what he mm-hmm. is. I hesitate to say hacker because I'm not sure if that word was really in usage at the time. But he was a, a programmer definitely was a huge electronics and computer geek so Mm -hmm. being that they don't seem to understand that entire culture and then on the other hand they must have had somebody representative of that culture or been writing it tongue-in-cheek because they have a, a, a really good computer they seem to understand what it takes to own a computer and mm-hmm. what goes into programming it they obviously had some sort of programmatic skills to have the computer do what it does because even you know throw that computer in front of somebody in 1988 and say make these words pop up on the screen and so many people will be like i don't know i don't know how first thing (laughs) how to hook the keyboard up to this fucking thing let alone make it do stuff so they must have had somebody on hand that was the sort of person they were trying to portray so then, of course, we're trying to make him look like a psycho axe killer, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So layering those things, I don't know entirely if it is by accident that they have painted him as such a psycho or if they were looking to just paint him as a computer nerd. And they're all basically like psycho killers, right? <laughs> um, it, it works in a weird sense because he seems so different from everybody including by the way the person who's supposed to be his closest friend richard richard aside from being a bit of um like money grubbing and you know he's in a loveless marriage and he's uh, stepping on in his wife he seems way more adjusted like he jokes around with um his clientele, people like him. He's, you know, chatty. Everyone likes him. And like you said, like Gerald doesn't even really treat him well, but he kind of, it's almost like that attitude of like, oh, that's just his way. Like, don't worry about it. Like, I'll still be his buddy and shit like that. And it's just uh, the whole time I'm watching it, I just can't 
get past this fact that he's so unlikable as a character, but yet you spend a lot of time with him. Yeah, you do. And he's shitty to absolutely everybody he meets. And we basically meet every other character through Gerald. He's the first person we really meet. And we meet the Doctor and Lillian and the Exterminator and everyone else related to them through him. So we do spend the bulk of our time with this guy with a weird disposition and a shitty attitude. I don't understand why they're even friends with him. Like, I get why he hooks up with Lillian because he's looking to date a girl, I guess. And she's looking to date a guy when she's home for the summer from school mm-hmm. that makes a lot of sense but why anyone else has anything to do with this fucking guy i don't understand <laughs> uh he doesn't work for the exterminator i don't think but if they would have just added a line that made me think that maybe he works with him part-time and that's why mm-hmm. they spend time together then it all makes sense absolutely it seems to me they just met <laughs> In a lot of ways, it does seem like they just met. It seems to not be clear how what his relationship to the town is. Because it's like it seems like he's got some old friends there and people know who he is. But at the same time, it also seems like he's been there for like three days. Like, who, who really knows? Well, there's another murder. Well, or suicide. We don't really know. We find a body, which is the smell, that uh, Richard is gone to go investigate. They might have assumed that uh, at the bar there was a couple of... Uh, dead rodents in the walls spoiler alert it turns out to be a human being and that kicks off this investigation the interesting thing about this investigation is the sheriff character both wants it to be a suicide but also doesn't want it to be a suicide he doesn't want the whole thing to happen or seem to have happened whatsoever because this is a sleepy little town and you know yada yada i don't want to see any murders and stuff like that so they kind of want to keep things dead and buried a la the you know the mayor in jaws the head of the camp in sleepaway camp like every character of authority that says that you know can't have no murders around here this is a nice quiet town no he literally tells the coroner to just sew her up and we'll keep it quiet (laughs) yep suicide this this is one of the first real scenes that we have where there's going to be sheriffs and doctors and and uh, police officers again standing in semicircles discussing characters after the fact so we learn more about characters after they die which is an interesting technique i've seen it done a few times i've even written stories like that before in which you learn about characters after they're already deceased when we're getting heavily into the murders you know, we find out that that one woman, Maggie, is also a prostitute. And for a hundred bucks, which is a lot of money back then, I, I didn't, I was going to see what the adjustment for inflation is from $1988 to $100, but uh, I forgot. But uh, needless to say, everyone seems to think that she's pricey, but worth it. Which is absurd in that I'm pretty sure the going rate for like a blowjob was five bucks and some sort of sex was 10 and they could take you around the world for 50 bucks so she is extremely overpriced to be the town bicycle she it really is she's nothing special she's not a high-priced prostitute she doesn't have a pimp she is the town bike (laughs) i like how hard you come down on this well i give it a lot of thought you know but like listen who do you think you are charging a hundred bucks 
It's like, I can get a blowy for five. <laughs> I want to know the inflation adjustment as well. But be that as it may, this also gave me sort of an inkling of Twin Peaks sort of intrigue going on here. Yes. Where you learn more about these people after the fact and to hear the police discussing and that feel of what a small town this really is. Very insular. Very much so. To the point in which um, there's a scene not too long later of a funeral. And when you look at everyone that's at the funeral, it's a fairly large um, gathering of people. And just like if you were from a small town, you know everyone that's there. Because you've met them through the course of the story. I love when we do small town horror and you get that sense of being in a small town. Yeah, and they can pull it off without us feeling like they only had 10 cast members and they're having <laughs> to make everything look bigger than yeah. it is because there are extras. And I had noted while I was watching this that they didn't skimp on extras. The orderlies aren't the same orderlies we see every single time. The people who come to retrieve the bodies, because there are more aren't the same attendance every time. Uh, just random people in the backgrounds here and there, when we do catch glimpses of them, aren't the same extras every time. So they had a lot of extras for these smaller roles. So it gives that illusion of that there is an actual town going on around this. And they have other vehicles, many police and EMS vehicles. So we get this real solid idea of the size of this town yet. We do recognize everyone at that funeral mm -hmm. and understand how they relate to the, the body or relate to previous deaths and can fear for them or feel for them when it comes to the deaths that may come in the future. Because mm -hmm. there is quite a body count that this poor sheriff has to contend with and cover up and hide and not investigate because he's a lazy bastard. Uh yeah, quite a what they have six murders in the matter of a couple days. Don't they, they do six six women, one man, so seven in total. the The funny thing is is that when you are going through these murders, it seems random at first. It seems as though anyone could be getting off at any time because we, like you said. Things aren't really clear how everyone's connected until about the midway point of the movie um, when you get some background on Lillian's character and then also what Gerald discovers. There are also something that I thought was really interesting. I want to know your thoughts on it. So most of the time in this film, we see a character and you're like, who's that? Oh, it's a woman walking by herself at the train track. So she's dead. Or, oh, there's a woman by herself. She, she's, she's gone. But there's one instance, only one, in which the killer fucks with somebody. Just fucks with them. They kill one of their hogs and then leave them alone and then kill them later. I wonder what that is the service to. Is that to pull the taffy? Is that to make the movie longer? Or... Was there some other reason you could think of that? Because I was like, every other instance, this killer kills per a person immediately upon encountering them. And in that instance, they just wanted to scare them. It's definitely smacks of fan service because not long before we had that beautiful entry of the who turns out to be a nurse in her car mm -hmm. wash getting slaughtered. And there's not going to be a murder for a little bit. So we have a little bit of time 
Um, mm-hmm. Speaking in, in terms of the plot, if it's not just fan service, pulling the taffy, as you put it, and to have a beautiful set piece of a dead pig head, because it is pretty cool. I really liked that scene. But yeah, it is the only time that they really play cat and mouse, so to speak, or hog and the bed head. Yeah. It is maybe if we're taking all of that out of the equation and it's characterize this moment, it's I'm back. I'm back with a vengeance. I'm going to fuck this town right to the fucking ground. So here's my message. Mm-hmm. I'll uh, horse head in your bed. You fucked up. Yeah. Shit's going to go bad. And maybe it is a message to the town. Why pick on a farm wife and her frenzied, frazzled, overworked husband? I don't know. But it does make for some pretty good visuals. It does. And you're right. I think I think you hit the nail on the head there. I think that is what narratively speaking the only reason why i bring it up is because of all the the stock and slash scenes in this film and there's quite a few that is the most giallo-esque to me where it's a it's a long scene that ends with a scare but a character's not killed and an animal is killed instead that to me is like has the most European sensibility to it. And I think it does add to, if we are believing our red herrings here, and we think that Gerald may be responsible for some of these crimes, and we know he's not because it's just too uh, paint by numbers at that point. So we know it's not, but if it were, that's part of the McDonald triad of him being like antisocial, maybe violent towards animals. I forgot about the pig in that respect, but yeah, mm-hmm. uh, it is very black glove killer and it's very in the shadows. We don't get a glimpse of the mask or the killer. We get the raincoat and boots, which is just like so many of our favorite killers, masked or unmasked. Mm-hmm. And when you're seeing that scene or others, because they also, um, they kill a dog. Although you don't see them kill a fish, they do smash a, a, an aquarium. So um, you, you do see that. But like in the sense of um, pulling the taffy on the scenes and having more than one red herring, this is the point that I wanted to make, which I also thought was very funny, is when I think Maggie was killed, who's the nurse slash prostitute or barkeep slash prostitute. The sheriff goes to, like, one guy who is a known patron of hers, apparently only slept with her once because it was expensive and her wife was getting suspicious. And the whole time that the sheriff is talking to him and he's like, I didn't do anything, he's, like, menacingly pounding a tool in his hand that looks like you could kill somebody with it easily. And it reminded me, just speaking of pieces, it reminded me of, like, that one character we keep seeing in pieces with the chainsaw, yeah, where like he just he keeps just like looking at the chainsaw like it's the most beautiful thing in the world, and I was just joking while I was watching it, thinking, yeah, there's a good way to make sure a police officer thinks you definitely didn't kill somebody with a tool, is to stand over him and just pound a tool into your hand and say how innocent you are. And the cop even says, you know, she was killed with an axe just like that one, and he's like. What, yeah. what what are you fucking trying to say? <laughs> Very so, absurd and so... the, the most ridiculous broadcasted red herring since pieces because I do love that. But it also, I they're also trying to make that tension like uh, wood chopping scenes in the Amityville Horror. It's that yeah. tension, that weapon's probably going to be used. 
you know, you're showing the, the gun in this act, it needs to go off next in this act. Like, you're, you're expecting that that's sort of what they're playing with there, all the while, again, mm. knowing this can't be our guy. It just can't be. It doesn't fit. No, doesn't fit. We haven't spent enough time with him, and it would be a real cheap shot. It would be like, oh, here's a character that we've spent one scene with. He's definitely the killer. Nah, like, yeah, that, that would be really disappointing. They take some time to explore this town, these characters, how they're reacting to the deaths that are happening around them. Um, Richard, the exterminator, Gerald's best friend, he's off on a tryst with this um, uh, red-headed lady with the bodacious... Tatas? Yes, tatas. Tatas. I feel so awful for saying that. I believe it comes but... from the French tatan. <laughs> you know what? I feel less gross now. And, you know, they're having like a whole scene together. And it is very Twin Peaksy, where you're just going off on t- in other directions with other characters, all reacting to the weird things that are going on in the town, while people are simultaneously trying to get to the bottom of it, while people are also thinking that they could be the next victim because nobody quite understands how all of these deaths are connected. And the only thing that they know for sure is that a ne'er-do-well biker, biker they call him, he's got a yeah, right. bike, but like... <laughs> um, Might as well have a moped has, at some point. I, I know, right? Like the fact that the sheriff is like, uh, you know, we got some bikers here. I'm like, bikers? Like he's... Yeah, you're right. It may as well be a fucking moped. He just, like, rolls through town. That's the only thing that we know for sure. Meanwhile, this budding relationship between the young Lillian and Gerald, and they, you know, get together, have conversations, and, you know, Lillian is not that different from, you know, women of today. Loves her true crime. Does investigating of her own. Gerald likes to, like, look up murders and also car accidents and fires and any other crime that's going on in the in the areas around him seems like a match made in heaven it truly does you can see why the two would have hooked up too aside from just their the gaps in their lives where he seems to be new to town hasn't met a lady and has an um this idea that there's something more to a relationship than just banging everyone like his friend, the exterminator. Mm -hmm. He looks for something more rich in a relationship, it seems. And like many computer minded people do, I'll have, you know, and then Lillian, of course, being home from school, like what's better than that scenario? Because she's looking for maybe my American boyfriend, beach blanket, bingo, all of those things (laughs) that you do in the summer off school, or at least that's what she has us believe that she's home from Mm -hmm. school because that turns out to be a little bit of a white lie and or a fib entirely. I'm not sure if she ever attended school, but yeah, they are made in heaven in that way. And neither of them find one another weird to start either because she doesn't think his love of computers or his isolationism is, is weird. She thinks he's cool. And he doesn't think that her... Um, being her own woman, being quite independent and very intelligent and fun and into computers as well is weird. That's cool. So it's kind of forward thinking in that way. And I I like that about these two. Let me ask you this, because one of the weirdest things 
in this movie, in my opinion, there's two things that really make um, this movie really distinct for me. That is not the killer and it's not really the plot. Um, one, it's all the pop cans that are everywhere. Oh my um, God. I forgot about that till just now. Yeah. We noticed Sunkissed. Or no, wait. Sunkissed, The Welch's, Grape Sodas, 7-Up, Coke. Coca-Cola everywhere. Everywhere. Everybody. There's even one scene where they're in like a, a doctor's or a psychologist's office. The one that has like the fucking picture of Ronald Reagan behind him. And just on a shelf... In the corner is a can of 7-Up. And every time you're in someone's house, there's just like a fucking six-pack of cans of soda just everywhere. And it's so bizarre to me. And I'm wondering, I was like, it's set dressing, clearly. it's You're not meant to really pay attention to it, but it's so distracting for some reason, all the pop cans that are everywhere. I can't remember the name of the orange branded Coke product right now that is all over the place in that. And I want to say Sunkiss, but that's the orange. And it's not like Fresca or anything like that. Um, but it is everywhere. But they uh, do yeah. mention pop and Coke. And do you want a Coke? And you didn't finish your Coke. I'm going to drink a Coke. They do mention it here and there, but it is in like every scene. And there is one scene where someone walks out of the bar and... Surra- they are surrounded by coca-cola signs there's one hanging off like a shingle of the building there's mm-hmm. one on the side of the building and there's one on the other side yep. of the scene coming in stage left and it's another sign that is outside of the building so they are literally surrounded by coca-cola signs and we had just left an interior shot where there's fucking cans everywhere it is so heavily mentioned that I can't believe it's not sponsored yeah. or if they were trying to angle for a look that they were or is that not illegal? Like, can you do that? I don't know. It, it kind of reminds me of Tourist Trap and the Dr. Pepper, how they're constantly offering yeah. people Dr. Pepper in Tourist Trap. But this is so, I don't know, like, and, and it's fun to look at the old cans you like look at the old seven up cans and you're like, look at those fucking like these bright green cans that are in every scene. And, and it wouldn't matter if there's like, here's the back of a bar. There's just one can of that orange soda. Here's a can of Coke. And yeah, sometimes Gerald is hold, is like that one scene. He's holding two cans of Coke just, <laughs> just yeah. as he's talking. And I know it's part of the scene. It's part of like, Hey, do you want to drink? But like, it's like a Coke constantly. He's at the, he's outside. He's got a Coke. The other thing I'm really distracted by is the giant Dudley Do-Right picture on the side of Lillian's computer. She has <laughs> like on, on the, I didn't know what it was. So it's Dudley it's Do-Right. It's Dudley Do-Right. And, and I, and I was just like, I was like, is this like a subtle nod? Because I looked it up. I was like, is this a subtle nod that this was like shot in Canada or something? It's not. But like it was because on the very top of her shelf, she's got like a character from Popple, not Popple's, uh, Rainbow Bright, which I recognized. I was like, oh, yeah, I remember that little toy. And on top of her computer, she's got Daisy Duck. And then on the side of it is just a big cut out picture of Dudley Do-Right from Rocky and Bullwinkle. Every time that she, they're trying to have a, like a serious conversation, I'm just hyper-focused on this picture of Dudley Do-Right. And it's just such a left-of-center 
thing. Like in in the Gerald's room, he's got like a Max Headroom poster and like a poster of Platoon, and he's got like a picture of David Bowie and shit like that. I, I kind of get it. He's like a techie sort of computer guy, so that kind of stuff makes sense, I suppose. But just the Dudley Do Right thing—it's just talk about weird set dressing. The Dudley Do Right thing is weird because like Rocky and Bullwinkle were um, subversive among some groups especially like stoner groups which he's clearly not part of yeah and like not the sort of person who would be reading mad magazine and and find some sort of affinity with rocky and bullwinkle perhaps it's speaking to her misplaced youth which we don't really hear much about except for the story which i guess we should get to about her on the swing set but the perhaps like these found objects of rainbow bright and, and daisy duck are just sort of throwaway items that it's like i can put these in my room and people will think that i'm a a girl with some sort of like personality you know why it's weird to me and i think i've just figured it out it's weird to me because typically speaking and this goes back to what you were saying is like can they even do this typically speaking movies will not show you things that are real things like they'll show you oh this girl has like a stuffed stuffed toys they're all generic they're not going to be an ip they're not going to be a thing owned by people it's going to be a teddy bear it's going to be a unicorn it's going to yeah it's a stuffed duck and a stuffed mouse and you're like okay they're they're trying to say disney without using disney exactly whereas this is like this is dudley do right this is daisy duck this is from rainbow bright these are things that are owned by people Right. So like to just toss it in your movie and like, I guess you could make the argument like who gives a shit. It's just to like fill out the space and like who's going to pick on our little rinky tink movie. But for some reason, most people don't give it a chance. It's like when they're in the bar, they're kind of playing like a weird sort of twisted version of that Dire Straits song, like um, Sultans of Swing or whatever it's called. Yep. And it kind of they've just changed the guitar riff and it's not like. It sounds like they just reversed it or something. So I was like, yeah, that makes sense. Or in prom night where they do disco songs that sound like other songs, but they're not because they don't want to pay the rights to that shit. So most people just try to avoid spending money or even raising someone's ire. But having like Coke so prominently in the movie and 7-Up and all the Coke products and stuff like that, and then having like a Disney toy just like right there it is constantly in the frame it's just really strange it is constantly in the frame almost as much as sun coke product that is everywhere in this film yeah because you would think that okay why not use good radio music because that is one of the things that really take me out of this film I, i love the synth score even the weird sort of electronic toms that they play whenever they show a body mm-hmm. twice kind of ridiculous but i love it and the synth score is actually very mm-hmm. good in this. I, I Whoever they had programming the, the music that way did a really good job. But that crappy sort of ripoff of Sultans of Swing <laughs> and the Dolly Parton yeah. not music, it's the volume's a little loud. So it makes me wonder, did they use contemporary music at one point and need to yank it out? Not realizing maybe or trying to circumvent the permissions that you would have to get to use Coke, Disney, and every other fucking thing that they show in this film, like Platoon or Max Headroom, like, can you even have those posters on your wall without a license? 
and Coca-Cola. Coke and Disney, the two biggest <laughs> fucking commercial gods on the planet and have been for quite some time. Did they just use these without permission and then had the music rights yanked or what? Like, why not use contemporary music? It's it's definitely one of those things where, like, I enjoy, like, I enjoy thinking about it. I enjoy watching this movie and focusing on all the Coke cans and all the 7-Up cans and the Sunkiss and all this kind of stuff. And it, it really makes it's like, you know, looking at all the moose head that's in My Bloody Valentine, right? It's just fun to notice it. But uh, I can tell you what's not fun, lids. Falling off of a swing and cracking your fucking head open. Even though Gerald will make a rather crass joke about the whole thing. <laughs> yeah, they are in the throes of Beach Blanket Bingo, Summer Lovin'. And they're on a, a swing. And she, Lillian relays to him a story about pushing her young cousin charlie on a swing when they were young mm-hmm. and how she kept pushing him and pushing him even though he said no and i guess just being a, a rowdy little kid she pushed him too high and he flew off the swing and cracked his head open she's never seen him again really touching never saw him again he, he's like oh, i could imagine him just flying through the air <laughs> and then she's just like he cracked his skull open like just it's fucking crazy um she delivers the speech quite well it's definitely like that phoebe cates my dad died in the chimney moment but like you get this sense for the first time that perhaps it's this secret third character that perhaps might be stalking the town although lillian starts to suspect that Charlie is now Gerald. And she starts to suspect based off of computer research and also that he has a prominent scar on the back of his head that he doesn't really want to talk about how he got. Now, of course, we aren't sure because the world is our oyster as far as Charlie is concerned because she was told that Charlie died she was also told that charlie was in an insane asylum she was also told that charlie escaped so we have all these ideas Mm -hmm. that could be true and coupled with this scar the fact that gerald takes a liking to her right away they're about the same age they're about the right age to fit in all this we don't know where gerald has come from and yes it could explain why he's got this vendetta if he is or that this Gerald is innocent and he really did get that scar from a motorcycle accident he doesn't like to talk about (laughs) and Charlie is this holy other third person who has indeed escaped from the insane asylum and is coming back to fuck up this town like it does work really well to try and solidify Gerald as the killer all the while we know as a viewer we just are fighting against that because we know it can't be it's too simple that's too simple yeah so we've watched enough horror movies to know that this is definitely a story that is relevant to the plot of the movie but not in the way that we might think now as the bodies are piling up even um uh richard's wife who was maybe having an affair um at the same time that Richard was having an affair after she became bankrupt, which is this whole subplot that goes throughout the movie. 
but ends up with just her getting murdered very bizarrely because the 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 man that she's with is in the car that they have an accident in she goes to see him if he's all right or or get his attention and then the killer is actually in his seat and so you're like did he change (laughs) did he have that mask in his pocket the whole time and what we do we're pretty sure the color is a dude because he's stocky he might be quick so he may be just smaller but he wears these big boots and I keep saying he because mm-hmm. we're getting into Voorhees territory here from the first one where it just everything is pointing mm-hmm. to this killer being a man. And even all the men are about the same size in this. There's no one that's except for Gerald, who's very slim or very big or really tall. They're all really the same. They all wear jeans because that's just this Southern California town on the edge of Texarkana. It is like just jeans and cowboy boots kind of place or motorcycle boots. Or just shit kickers. They 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 wear like full on um, denim to funerals. Yeah. They're like, I got my good blue jeans on and my good jean jacket on. I'm going to a funeral. That, one thing with the funeral, <laughs> the camera angle in that. Most of the camera in this, the camera works very straightforward. But the camera angle in that is this like bodacious and almost comical wide angle. Almost a fish eye lens. And it's right up in everyone's faces. Yeah, you think it's a fucking Beastie Boys video. Like, good lord, it's so strange. And they don't really do that anywhere else in the film. The other thing that I wanted to mention is you were talking about the fact that all of these things are pointing towards the killer being a man. There is a sequence in this movie in which we see the killer unmasked in shadow it is very clearly a man like like they even use that shot in the trailer and it kind of reminds me of i was wondering if is this a case of just listen it was 1988 crt tvs were your best bet this was going to be on vhs everyone watched this shit blurry we can get away with this like sleepaway camp where they used um, a male actor to be Angela's mm-hmm. character. And I, cause I was looking at this, I was like, does this only look so obviously bad because we're dealing with like an HD cleaned up, super good version of this film, or is it meant to, completely throw us off because it's not clear who it is it looks kind of like gerald but the hair is a little wrong but at no point does it look like who the killer actually is are they wearing a mask under the mask it's they take their mask off and they have a mask of a man (laughs) it's a double mask it is it is very much a dude it is very much a fucking dude um throughout all of the killings that we see it moves like a dude. It kills like a dude. It just acts like a dude. Yeah, it's it's pretty wild to me. And, you know, we've kind of already spoiled it a little bit. But did you see the twist coming? Because I didn't. I really was like, oh. I didn't know who the killer was, but I didn't think it was going to be, um, I'll just say it, Lillian. 
Lillian's the killer. Yeah, Lillian's the killer. It was a double twist. It was a mick twist, if you will. <laughs> and no, I didn't really see it coming because it is kind of absurd. Yeah. And I really thought that maybe there was just a third person, the mm-hmm. the phantasmagorical Charlie that was terrorizing this town. Or that my favorite other, as far as red herrings and McTwists go, is somebody who you saw for a split second at the very beginning of the film. It's the police chief. Ah, <laughs> you know? <laughs> like, um, what was it, Friday the 13th, part five. It's the ambulance driver. Exactly. Or it's the priest because everyone's fucking getting laid around here. Don't have sex, kids. The priest. You know, that sort of thing. The priest actually would have been a really good... That would have been good because they we spend a lot of time with him and he knows yeah. Lillian and he's introduced to Gerald and you could easily like, listen, when you Scooby-Doo mask pull that off and he's lying dead or they're lying dead, you could just fucking write whatever you could and like, yep, who would have guessed that? 10 years ago today, his wife was killed or something. You just make something up or like he couldn't stand how this town was changing. He never. And that's your just let's throw away explanation. Meanwhile, what ends up actually happening in the film is there's a stock and slash scene. We don't know who the killer is. Gerald shows up and he's got a lot of information now. He does. And it's a little bit of an info dump, but it is at least rendered in a gorgeous setting. It's a dark large house that's my favorite setting for these stock and slash if it's not a home invasion it certainly feels like it right because he's wearing his shiny black boots he's got his best pair of jeans on his hair is fluffy and textured and feathered and he looks extra sexy like he was coming over there for a date but no he's coming (laughs) over there to confront her with the actual truth the capital t truth in that lillian had created charlie to deal with this deep psychosis that she's been fighting against all of her life and this is the first we've heard about her being crazy but it all makes sense when charlie relays to us that all of the research she was doing on the imaginary charlie led back to her incarceration in a psychiatric unit that's right. Every one of these people that have been murdered was um, someone who worked on her. Although they're they're just like, hairdresser? I'm like, did she have a hairdresser at the psych ward? What are you trying to say? She was starting to go berserk by that point, I think is what they're trying to get away with. Although they didn't have the terminology to, to do it because... <laughs> We, we, we're lucky to be equipped with all of the horror tropes and, of course, all the true crime know-how. Yeah. And we can be our armchair forensic psychologist. It's true. And reverse engineer this. She was going berserk and had hit a point where there was, she was blood frenzied. Yes, so frenzied. Um, you know, I was even thinking, I was like, when she was pushing Gerald on this the swing and then she had this, she was triggered. I was like, and and I was thinking, I was like, oh yeah, it was like a triggering thing because she's pushing him on the swing and that's this scenario that she had fabricated in which this trauma had happened. But I was like, man, they never would have, they never would have put that together. They just wrote this scene because they're just like, yeah, she's nuts. Eh, this dame is crazy. And they're just, they're just like, that's how they handle it in 1988. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I like the twist because it's a long heritage of the killer as a woman in horror. Love that. Yep. And I love how the movie ends because the police, by the way, 
barreling in on this house, which I agree with you is so gorgeous. 29 doors in this place. But what's really, what really made me claustrophobic is how narrow the hallways are. Yeah, older houses. There was a an upstairs hallway in my grandmother's farmhouse that reminded me a lot of this. Just door after door after door off this little narrow hallway, and the power goes out there. It's an instant murder house. Oh yeah, absolutely. Like I was trying to imagine, like my God, my shoulders would be knocking down every picture on the wall walking down those hallways. The thing that I love is the police come barreling to the house, and the reason is is the sheriff suspects. That it, well, the sheriff, like, low-key was suspecting a lot of people, but he had Gerald in the in his sights for a little while. The last thing was that the, the fact that Lillian had put a name tag from the restaurant, the Neb's Place restaurant that she works at. So they go down there to see what's going on because she lives as, as part of this restaurant. And mm-hmm. this... Her running out of the house while he, like, just menacingly, like, stalks after her. I love you. We can figure this out. And <laughs> just gets shot in the chest. It's, um, it's kind of like Black Christmas in the sense, you know, they find a body and who knows who actually killed this person. Maybe it was her or whatever, but it's not the real killer. Um, and just in case you think that Gerald might have been wrong and was delusional because there's this back and forth between the characters and Gerald comes off just as unhinged as Lillian in this yes, scene. He, he really does. He is saying all of this stuff like, look, look what you did and I can help you. And, and, and like, you know, you're the, you're the killer. And she's like, you're the killer. You're Charlie. And I was like, first of all, Lily, have you suspected this this for a while? Why'd you keep kissing him, weirdo? Second of all, like, she is at the fiery peak of 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 uh, madness. So she's like shoving him and if you know trying to get the axe, but it's not entirely clear if someone's trying to if they're trying to kill each other or not. She seems to be just trying to get away from him, and then. They pull like a thriller in which she like menacingly just looks at the camera or off to the side while she's hugging the sheriff. The nightmare is over. Or is it? Yeah, setting us up almost for a sequel, but at least, at least solidifying our idea that Gerald was right and telling the truth. And Mm -hmm. she is a crazed maniac Mm -hmm. that has a deep, deep psychosis. It's also like that sort of time in, in history where... Uh, we were really understanding the cycle of abuse. Mm-hmm. We were really understanding the nature of psychopaths or psychopathic um, killers as well. We're also in the forefront. And the um, women's shelters were really doing a lot of work in having the public understand what is a toxic relationship. It was the beginning of that. So it may not have been a coffee shop talk mm-hmm. like it is now. Like Everyone seems to be very aware of... Uh, what is the nature of an abusive or toxic relationship and how those people behave and manipulate one another and the codependent or um, the obsessive compulsive, how those natures in a personality disorder, let alone a psychosis, manifest. And him acting like that 
could be boiled down to the whole, if somebody is cheating on another, the next thing they're going to probably do is accuse that person of cheating on them mm -hmm. because it is how their mind works. That's what their reality is. And as soon as the other person acts untoward, they throw their own mistakes in the face of the other person so it just makes so much sense especially in 1988 where all that stuff was just kind of fresh right mm, and exciting mm -hmm. to have learned about and we were finally understanding these natures of abusive relationships which these two seem to be almost heading into and if they weren't if one of them wasn't a psychopathic killer um him throwing all that on her we're like oh yeah yeah that's just how you guys operate you're a manipulative <laughs> bastard. You're the crazy one because that's what you do, right? Mm -hmm. And so it works so well. It really, that's the things that elevate this movie mm -hmm. above its awkward computer use and really strange like music choices and its proliferation of Coca-Cola products that drag it down. Those are the things that really really elevated and I, I think that it is ahead of its time so much in that sort of psychological thinking that's built into these characters so well from the very beginning and then of course just the way that it has body discoveries the corpse the gore the effects like it is, it is all very very good so I wish that this would have had some sort of theatrical release because it would be up there with a lot of the other movies of its time the late blooming slasher cycle yeah, you're absolutely right. But in in a weird way, it's it's kind of like these things are so fun to discover. I definitely agree with you. Like this movie just offers so much in terms of well, at the same time being fun, it offers a lot of of um, complicated thinking. If you want to go there, you don't have to. You want to just watch like a movie in which people get axed and pigs and dogs get killed and all that kind of shit. There's your movie, and 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 you're good to go. But um, yeah, like I, I found myself really liking it toward the end. It's not it's not at the level of like when I watched like Blood Rage for the first time and I was like, oh, my God, like, where's this been my whole life? Like, this is so fucking yeah. cool and good. Um, or, you know, like well, the first time I ever saw like uh, Prowler, just really cool hidden gem slashers however this one is a worthy addition to the subgenre of slasher it doesn't elevate anything but it definitely has its place and um you know mm -hmm. it's one of my favorite things about the era in which we live in i mean you know a lot of people say like oh wes you're always living in the past you only like old things and you fucking hate new things and i'm just like i like old things because we're not done watching them all yet there's still a lot, um, and particularly when you think about how much was released and how much still has never even left VHS. Like this had never left VHS. And all of a sudden, here it is in the best version that you could possibly watch of it. I'd have never heard of it if it wasn't for Shudder, really, honestly. And I'm thankful for that. Yeah. And, and Shudder is just like, not to make a fucking commercial for Shudder, but like, they have just been, like, putting up some really cool stuff lately. Like, really, really cool stuff. Like, older stuff that, like, like fucking Gabo. Like, who the fuck was going to, like, who's going to put that up? Oh, you know what I mean? Like, it, or the McPherson tape they put up. Like, that's another thing that was, like, it was a TV movie. People, a lot of people don't know about it. 
Um, and we'll, I'd love to get to that one day. Um, yeah, but uh, I'm really, really stoked. And I'm glad you liked it. Um, yeah, uh, it's a really good movie to come back to. Yeah, it reminded me a little bit as far as Masked Killers, even though it's way, it's not as cool. It's not as cool at all. Of Alice, Sweet Alice. Yeah. And it has that same sort of feel to me where it's not an old movie if you haven't watched it yet. Because I hadn't watched Alice, Sweet Alice um, until I was a little older. And then when we did it for the show, it was like watching it with a whole fresh new eyes again. Mm -hmm. And so this movie could have been released last week as far as I'm concerned. Right? Absolutely. Uh, so I, I did enjoy it quite a lot. Yeah. And you know, similar to Alice Sweet Alice, now that you bring that up, it's like it's playing with things in, in the way that it's a slasher. Absolutely. But there's so many other weird aspects to it where you're just like, it doesn't exactly fit the classical slasher mode. And it also doesn't feel like a cover song. Like so many of the, the the in the slasher revival of the mid to late '90s, for example, they were like, "Hey, remember these things? Well, we're gonna make them exactly like how you remember, and then we're gonna lean into those tropes to cartoon fucking levels." Um, this still very much feels like we're trying to make our own movie, but it's also a slasher, um, and we're not really calling attention to it. Which uh, makes sense. Like, you said this was the last thing that a director did before he died, you said? Oh, one of the last few things that he did before he retired. Yeah. So, or retired. Yeah. So, he must have just been like, you know what? I want to try one of these. I want to try one of these fucking slashers. And it was a little, it was a couple of years away from, like, what people now consider, like, the golden era. But again, even that's all hindsight, right? Like, people were just making movies. Like, there wasn't this... Yeah. But, like, everything hadn't been analyzed to death like things are now, thanks to people like us. <laughs> he could have just had the opportunity, you know, got talking with Jack Taylor and met up with Paige Mosley and was like, oh, I got all this extra time and these uh, bunch of Caro syrup. Let's make a goddamn movie. Or he was maybe... On the other hand, this was a calculated move trying to achieve commercial success because up until then he'd made these uh, virgin sacrifice occult boobs mm -hmm. and sex occult movies, right? So, like, maybe he wasn't achieving the amount of commercial success when he's seeing, like, uh, blood being allowed on television now. Yeah. That maybe that sort of intrigued him. So, who knows? I don't know. I, I'm very curious to go back and watch some of his previous things like i'm expecting something similar to black sunday or blood and satan's claw Ooh. and that sort of ilk it's what i'm expecting from his past work so who knows we'll uh maybe maybe come around to some of that if we get into some uh, demon titties in the future <laughs> or vampire lesbians perhaps. what do we got next for him anyway do we know no, we don't know. I'm sort of partial to doing Blood Vessel just because I think it'll be a romping good time. Blood Vessel. All right. <laughs> okay. So coming up next, we have Blood Vessel. Coming up next is Blood Vessel. And um, also, if you want to see Lydia, I think she rele you release like 600, 700 of your uh, YouTube, successful YouTube channel. Top three was it top three booktube stuff yeah it was top three in the feed spot canadian book podcast list because i simulcast my youtube show as a podcast as well 
on Anchor. And you can but get like, those on uh, Spotify, which is where I listen to it. And they're good because they're little, they're bite sized. They're not overly long. Sometimes you get a little long, but not not, not very often. Yeah, somewhere between like seven and twenty minutes, typically. There's a few longer episodes, and like um, I've been doing some reading with uh, a group of other women Bucktubers, so we're gonna do like a group chat about one of those books. So there's gonna be some longer stuff here and there, and. But either way, I mean, I typically don't talk about movies, so I have to get all my movie love out here. Yeah. Even though I get all my book love out there. <laughs> so who knows? But the show has been doing very, very well. So I'm always super pleased. So if, if anyone's interested in checking out the YouTube show, if you're not into YouTube shows, there is a podcast. And you can listen to it pretty much everywhere you listen to Dead Air, except SoundCloud. Because yeah. that's where we live. We live at SoundCloud. We do. <laughs> but yeah, one of the things, like it just seemed to be a, like, a lucky month in that I got some modicum of success with that show. And then Thomas, hi Thomas, he had sent us a note previously about mentioning the show as sort of background noise in his Just Us Cops comic. And lo and behold, poof, here we are. We had a little sneak peek of what splatter pictures dead air podcast looks like on a billboard in just us cops issue four which is pre-order available now i like it because i saw that panel and i was like oh man could you imagine if podcasts had billboards (laughs) (laughs) and we were successful enough to have a billboard um that'd be really it felt like it was us being successful enough to have a billboard because i mean comic books i mean it just might as well be real life right now. It's like we're living in a goddamn comic book this last year. But I think that that's cool because it sort of ties all of this together. Aside from us having the show and the show having fantastic fans mm. and having a fan who creates a fantastic comic book. Because if you think Just Us Cops doesn't have horror elements, surprise, it does. Not just us on a billboard. But yeah, that and the fact that you are a celebrated comic book writer. I think that it all just sort of comes together with this Just Us Cops episode. How is Teresa doing? I know I am a patron of Teresa. Thank you very much. I I was like, I'm always so um, happy when anyone's a patron of Teresa. We are, we are on, um, we are currently writing or I'm currently running um, Teresa Seek Out the Light and that's getting released um, every week, every other week now, because um, my artist Chris Begarin is really swamped with work. The, the The pandemic has affected his work as well, so you know we've slowed things down, but it's still coming out. And we're encroaching on our three year anniversary of when Teresa got released, and this is officially once this is done, it'll be eleven full issues of Teresa completed, which I I'm so shocked and uh, the story is barreling towards its conclusion so that's fantastic considering you guys were sort of uh exploring avenues of release and then had a very like fuck it moment fuck it we'll do it ourselves fuck it yeah we're gonna just put it on this site instead of having to worry about publishing or the back end and technology and We'll we'll just release it this way for it to have been the perfect home for Teresa is is a lucky thing and I 
congratulate you both. Thank you. It's really nice. It's really, really nice. And everyone's really sweet. And I got a lot of really great support um, from people. And I'm, I'm glad people are digging the story. It's uh, It'll get crazy. And, um, you know, people uh, ask if um, once this main story is done, what happens to Teresa? And I don't know. world's full of monsters, so we'll see. But, but uh, The world is full of monsters. Yeah. But yeah. And that is the humanity that we may need right now. So I can see why it's going over so well now that we're all kind of home and able to partake in our favorite entertainment avenues like Teresa and Aurora, which was released uh, last year. Mm-hmm. Aurora and the sequel, um, which is, we just, I'll just call it Aurora 2 right now. There is going to be a subtitle, but uh, I don't think any of that information is released yet. But yeah, that's coming this year. It's already done, written. And more than half the pages have been completed. And so that'll be up on Kickstarter. And uh, I'll definitely let everybody know when that is going down so people can, uh, you know, toss some shekels towards the book. Toss some shekels. Now, I'll definitely be getting an email, but I'll be uh, picking your brain about it. So we will reconvene in probably a couple weeks for Blood Vessel. Give you time to watch it. And if you don't like it, we'll come up with something new. Who knows? (laughs) We're sort of leaning on Shudder for this episode and the next. And maybe even another because I jotted down McPherson tape. If uh, I know that that is one that's high up, even more than The Legend of Boggy Creek on the West list of formative, actually scary things. I definitely was scared very badly by it. We'll see if it scares me again. But uh, yeah, <laughs> or or if it'll be like The Legend of Boggy Creek where I watch it again and I'm like, all right, well, I was very young when I watched this the first time. <laughs> Crazy. Well, have fun watching Blood Vessel. I will. And on that note, I'm Wes Knipe. And I'm Typical Lydia. And you've been listening to Dead Air.